You are listening to The Court Leader's Advantage, a podcast series for court professionals and by court professionals. Brought to you in partnership with NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. Indulge me for a few minutes. Let's imagine that it's five years in the future and you're the court administrator of a three-judge court in a unified state system. You've been appointed to a committee by the State Administrative Office to implement a massive project on artificial intelligence, AI, and you're representing smaller courts. Now, no one has really defined what AI is, but reports abound of audio-recorded hearings converted to transcripts, disputes mediated online, bail and release decisions based on risk assessment algorithms, and litigant portals. Even the president has signed an initiative to make America first in AI. So what do you need to know? What do you need to do to prepare your court, your staff, and yourself for AI? I'm Pete Kiefer, and welcome to the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. I'm joined today by my co-host, Rick Pierce, Administrator with the Pennsylvania Administrative Office of the Courts. Welcome, Rick. Good to be here, Pete. We're here today chatting with Alan Carlson, a 40-year veteran of the trial courts in California, a national consultant on electronic court records, e-filing, and author of the paper, Using Artificial Intelligence and Big Data to Develop Tools in Courts. Hi, this is Alan. Thanks for having me, and I appreciate the opportunity to help explain AI and its use in courts. So, Alan, let's start by asking, AI, artificial intelligence, are the courts ready today? If the answer is no, will they be ready five years from now? Yeah, there's a lot of discussion about how AI will change uh, industries and our work, how we do our work and our lives. And the predictions of the impact on society and work range from uh, human bliss to dark overlords. Um, There are already some AI tools that can be used in courts. But most are tools that are used by businesses generally and are not specific to courts. I want to share a a salient quote attributed to a fellow named William Gibson uh, to keep in mind when you're talking about AI reaching courts and when it's going to get there, particularly small courts. Uh, The quote is, the future is already here. It's just not very evenly distributed. Uh, The trial court market is pretty small, and I don't think many companies are clamoring to help us. So absent some unforeseen astonishing breakthroughs, I don't see much being different in the next five years. Some folks have downplayed AI as being akin to Marty McFly's flying DeLorean and Back to the Future. Mostly it's just a fantasy. I mean, should we be excited about AI? What do you actually see it eventually doing for the courts? It's probably too soon to be really excited, uh, but you should be paying attention. First, there are going to be general business tools that courts can apply to assist in case management, mostly around automating work, document analysis, legal research. Some examples that are already in use include fillable smart forms, self-scheduling of hearings, notifications of hearing dates and jury service, scanning documents for data entry and redaction of confidential information, wayfinding in courthouses, and pretrial risk assessments. Some of these really don't have a lot of pure AI in them. Others are actually using the tools, uh, the AI algorithms. And perhaps someday we can get AI to help us with getting faster transcripts from video recordings or oral recordings. Probably translation services for less common languages. That seems to work pretty well already. And some document assembly, maybe for orders after hearing, for example. 
Online dispute resolution may catch on, but that's going to depend on the litigants. I don't know that we can really push that. And eventually, we'll see tools that will address business practices that are unique to courts. For example, some more robust self-help portals with smart document assembly tools, chatbots, and directions for people as to what to do next and how the process works. Too often, small courts get left behind in the fight for funding, particularly when it comes to technology. What advice do you have for our court administrator who is representing these smaller courts? I think on a couple different levels. Uh, the use of AI tools will necessarily change the way a court does business. And I think to get ready for this, a court to lessen the shock from the shift should be first moved to an all electronic record. This gets your court's data into an electronic form that can be used by the AI tools because they read, so to speak, documents and, and other data. And then always when you're going to change things like moving to an electronic record, it's a good idea to, to do re-engineering on your court's business practices. Uh, and this is not only going to get your court in a better position to take advantage of AI, it also gets your employees ready for change. They start doing things in more rational ways that make uh, better sense, they're simpler, and they get used to the notion of change. Another issue will be the standardization of business practices across courts, and I think this is particularly relevant for smaller courts. If the state provides AI tools, as is proposed here for the committee, this, uh, the administrator sitting on, uh, they're going to expect all courts to conform their business practices to the way the AI tool wants the work done. So you're going to have to change your business practices in your court if you're not doing it the way the AI tool wants you to do it or the state wants you to do it. Uh, we used to have this saying, if you've seen one court, you've seen one court. But if we start using standardized AI tools and business practices, things are going to be more uniform from one court to the next. And that's good in the sense of people who are going to different courts. But it's not so good if a smaller court ends up having to do something that the bigger courts decided to do. And, and I think that's important for the your administrator on the committee to pay attention to make sure that they aren't pushing business practices on small courts that don't make any sense in small courts. Uh, and as you mentioned, small courts are often the last to get adequate funding for technology. So the court manager here should be watching the administrative offices at the state level and the big courts to see what they're up to, to keep them reminding them about the existence of the small courts and the need to deal with things that small courts have that may or may not be the same in the larger courts. You're already on the committee with statewide level. That's very important. You should also make sure that representatives from small courts are included in any development or purchase of AI tools to make sure they're going to work in the smaller courts. And I think it also would be important to stay in touch with state legislators and local funders that represent the courts to give them a heads up on what's coming and reminding them not to forget about the smaller courts or your court in particular. Uh, no court's an island, and you need to be involved at both the state and the local levels. I know we said that our court administrators working in a unified state system, but this changes with many municipal and justice courts. Tell us, what advice would you give to a court whose funding body is a city council or a county board? These types of funders usually want quick returns on their investment. Good point. Uh, and the, and the, you always have that conflict if the state's telling the local court to do something, but the court's pretty well locally integrated with the justice system in a particular city or county. Uh, so the sell, I think, needs to be that how the projects integrate with the, the court's IT projects integrate with the city and county IT projects and the local justice agencies. So, for example, tying together the prosecutor and the public defender and the corrections folks and law enforcement so that you're exchanging documents electronically. 
and not paper documents, and that the agencies can receive notices and they can check on case status and hearing dates and that sort of thing. I think when you uh, make them remember and acknowledge the link between the state court and the local justice agencies, that gives you a hook to say, hey, you got to be part of this thing to make it work better. Uh, another local angle would be to get them to support local funding for legal aid or self-help entities with the theory that it makes the court more efficient, and efficient, but more importantly for the local funders, that it makes things easier for their litigants, for their constituents who are using the court system. AI has the potential for a variety of side effects, and we'll explore those right after this short break. This is Alice Roberts in Anchorage, Alaska. My work for the Alaska court system is both challenging and rewarding. One of the things I've come to appreciate while working here is my membership in NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. The bonds I've developed with other court professionals through NACOM are invaluable. The NACOM community provides the opportunity to exchange ideas, learn from others' experiences, and hear about innovations trending in courts today. If you are not a member, consider joining NACOM today. You can do so by clicking the Join Us button on the NACOM website at nacmnet.org. If you are a member, I strongly encourage you to get more involved by joining a NACOM committee. Find committee descriptions and meeting schedules on NACOM's website. Then, simply join a committee call. You'll be glad you did. We're back. With many AI tools, such as Online Dispute Resolution, or ODR, there is the potential for the courts to receive ancillary information about parties, information that might be valuable to others. For example, what if during an online mediation, a defendant reveals that he has regularly paid for construction work in cash? It's possible this could be relevant in a future dissolution matter or in a tax dispute with the IRS. What should courts do with information like this? That's a really good question, Rick. Remember, courts already have a lot of this information in the record, but it's inaccessible because it's in documents and they're not yet available in electronic form. So when we switch to having data and documents in electronic form that are readable, now you have a question that we haven't really had to deal with before uh, about what's available and who can see it now that it's in electronic form. Personally, I don't think the change in form from paper to electronic is the relevant thing that just because it's electronic now, it should be accessible. Uh, there's a really big underlying policy question here about who can access information and use the information in the court records. Most courts already have privacy policies and access to court records policies. They probably haven't been updated in, in some time, and they certainly haven't thought about how much are documents available in electronic form and how easily they can be seen. So we need to, uh, to look at that and to update that. I don't think just because they're readily available means they have to be accessible to everyone, but we need to establish policies about this overtly. One of the things a statewide committee might consider or another statewide committee would be revisions to the access to court records rules. Uh, on the question about using information in one case that might be relevant in another case, 
uh, our courts don't do that. The parties bring information to our courts. So they could, if they found the information in an older case, they could bring it forward in the new case. But as courts, we don't go searching for information about other cases in older, information in older cases before making a decision. And I don't think this is going to change just because electronic records now exist. Note that in most countries, different from America, court records are not open to the public the way they are in America. Another point here is that if people find out courts are selling information in court records, uh, they may not want to use the court. So we got to think about whether we want to encourage that or not encourage that. I don't think we're going to collect money for selling information, particularly uh, the state would if it's a state system or the local folks. Uh, but that's relevant. It might drive what people do or don't do using court systems. I've read reports that AI will create as many jobs as it will eliminate, but they won't be the same types of jobs. Do you see this as an opportunity, and what should millennials be doing to take advantage of it? Uh, this is a, a, a question where there's not a lot of consistency out there in the analysis. I mean, I've seen reports saying as many as 30 or 40 percent of the jobs will disappear, and other reports saying, no, oh, it might only be 5 or 10 percent. Uh, so I think the point is to focus on what is it the AI can do. And for the most part, we're going to lose jobs that are the result of work being automated. Uh, you don't need as many people to handle the same volume of work if the machine's doing most of the work and the only human involvement uh, is going to be quality control and oversight in a sense. I think the advantage and disadvantage of small courts is they don't have a whole rooms full of people doing the same task that an AI system could replace. I worked in a large court, and when we went to electronic files, I had 10 positions of people that only handled files, taking them back and forth to courtrooms and that sort of thing. And we just moved them to other work but because that job disappeared. But a small court doesn't have 10 people handling files. That's something the courtroom clerk or other people are doing as part of their job. Most of the employees in small courts have several tasks. So AI may make them more efficient and maybe more accurate, but it's not really going to eliminate a lot of jobs. Uh, it might eliminate a few. At the same time, I think the jobs that are created by AI have to do with maintaining AI and developing it and advancing it and that sort of thing. And that's not going to happen in a small court. That's going to happen at the state level or out in the businesses. So I don't know that there are new jobs for court people in that sense, uh, unless they want to move on up to the state level or somewhere else. But the interesting thing is that I think the new jobs at the local level are going to be, are going to be jobs that where the humans and the AI systems interact. I think a, a nice analogy is in grocery stores, now you have self-checkout sites. But there's always a person there who oversees maybe four or five different checkout sites when something goes wrong or when they can't figure out something or when there isn't the machine can't read the label, uh, the barcode. So there's a human there doing very different work. They're not running the items past the scanner. They're helping people resolve problems about you know, why wouldn't the machine read my scanner when I want to take my credit card, that sort of thing. I think those kinds of jobs will uh, be created even in small courts, customer support type things, uh, and maybe even in the more of a self-help arena. Now that we don't need to worry so much about the paperwork, we can help people fill out the papers and use the portals, that sort of thing. So I think there's going to be a definite opening in that direction, but it's not going to be real high volume, in a, again, in a small court. You know, many are concerned that these pretrial risk assessment tools may have bias baked right into the tool. What should I, as a court professional, do to look for systemic bias in a computer tool like this? Uh, unfortunately, I think most managers don't have the knowledge to assess bias in tools. We're going to have to rely on experts and not just the experts that work for the company selling the products. 
Frankly, any tool built using data from existing court records is going to be just as biased and maybe even more so than decisions humans make. Uh, I've read studies that say that the judges' decisions are affected by when was the last time they ate, when did they take a break, what decision did they make in the last few cases. Like if they put somebody on OR three times in a row, maybe the next time they're going to be more reluctant to put somebody on OR, even though the facts might suggest that. So we're a long way from the AI tools being less biased than humans. There are folks working on it. Uh, there's even one company that claims that they have a tool that you use on AI tools to detect bias. So you got to wait and see what, what people are saying and how the, how it's shaking out in a sense. Ironically, it occurs to me that one of the most useful things of these kind of AI tool developments is to reveal the bias in the existing system. When you build an AI tool to make a decision like pretrial release, and it turns out that what's important, the best predictor has to be where the person lives, what their income level is, what race they are, and that sort of thing. Suddenly you're going to say, hmm, maybe we need to fix the system before we automate it. And it, the AI might be more useful in that than in actually uh, making the decisions initially. And I think the most important thing is that we can't uh, get comfortable and just rely on the AI tool outcomes. We can't just do whatever the machine says. Uh, we should always use the AI results along with the humans or in, as part of a human's decision on making decisions. I read a great article recently about a medical system in China where somebody talks to a chatbot, explains their symptoms, and then the machine takes their symptoms from the chatbot and goes and looks at their medical record, which is electronic, and then presents this information to a doctor with suggested diagnosis. And I think that's a good model for how the system should be used. I understand that we're turning toward transparency with AI tools, but as they become more reliable, don't they also become more complex? And won't complex AI tools with their multiple factors from the neural network become just simply incomprehensible? Yeah, they're already pretty opaque, pretty complicated, especially the deep learning neural network systems and the, some things called GANs, which is what they use to, to win at Go games. There are industry folks, including DARPA, the Defense Research Agency, are trying to develop what they call explainable AI. Um, but that's, I don't know how much progress they're really making at that. The more, as you say, the more complex they are, the less transparent they are. And, but I think it's important to remember what's going on here in terms of transparency. What these systems right now are looking at is statistical correlations, not causation. And that's a huge distinction. They can't, they're never going to be able to explain a decision in a rational manner. They're going to say, well, based on these factors, my statistical prediction is X. That's not going to be real helpful in terms of transparency if you're trying to see, well, what, what would be different about this person that would result in a different decision. Uh, and essentially, you have to go back, change the data, and just run the program again and say, okay, the new statistical correlation is X. So it, the transparency is a real problem. But they're working on it, and who knows? They're clever folks, but not yet. Professor Eugene Volokh, in his paper on AI, says that the basic test to determine if AI is successful should be, and I'm paraphrasing here, the end result should be as good as what a human could produce, regardless of how AI arrives at that result. Do you agree? No, on this one, I don't, mostly because of the bias issue. I don't agree that basing decisions on patterns and correlations as opposed to causation or connecting the dot. I don't think that's just as good as a rational decision 
by a human, even though the human might be biased as well. <laughs> I have this old adage I think about when in these kinds of things is close enough only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. What AI is doing is getting close enough with a projection, a statistical projection. And frankly, if we're going to spend a lot of money on AI, I don't want it to be just as good as humans. I want it to be better than humans. If we do it because it's cheaper, there's a risk we're just going to settle for just as good and not try and do better. And I think we can do better. So let's go back to the question that we asked at the start of the podcast. What should our court administrator be asking? What should he or she be doing? I think uh, the administrator needs to pay attention, ask questions. They're already involved. They're on the committee. Don't miss any committee meetings. Go to all the committee meetings. Read all the materials. It's a lot of work, but you're there representing the little courts and Nobody else is going to represent the little courts like you are. Uh, so, uh, and then, as I said earlier, you got to get ready for what's coming by reengineering the work in your court, transitioning to electronic records. And remember that the goal always is not just to deploy standalone AI, uh, but to integrate the AI with your existing business practices so you get a better system and better service to your clients, to the litigants. Hey, I want to thank Alan for sharing his thoughts with us today. Artificial intelligence, AI, is certainly on the horizon. And we have to prepare so we don't miss the train as it roars by. We also don't want to be run over. Alan, you've been a huge help with your understanding of this emerging issue, and we look forward to talking with you again. Also, thanks to you, Rick, for joining us today and adding your insights. Hey, thanks to both of you. If you're interested in learning more about artificial intelligence, I invite you to take a look at the show notes section of our webpage. There, you'll find further reading suggestions, including Alan's paper, Using Artificial Intelligence and Big Data to Develop Tools in Courts. Until next month, I'm Pete Kiefer, and this is the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. Thanks for joining us today. The Court Leaders Advantage is a regular podcast series on courts and court administration. Look for new episodes the third Thursday of each month. Today's podcast will be available on the NACOM website, on Facebook, and on Twitter. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future podcasts, email us. Our address is clapodcast at nacomnet.org. I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests and the National Association for Court Management. Have a great day. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individual presenters. They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Court Management.